Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. Our passage this morning speaks about the importance of prayer, especially as it relates to evangelism. We see Jesus praying in Mark 1, and then we see him going out to fulfill his God-ordained mission to preach the gospel. As the followers of Christ, we are all called to preach the gospel. Some are especially called to preach as pastors and to preach from the pulpit. Some are called as missionaries to go to the uttermost parts of the earth as our pastor was sent to us. Parents are called to teach these things, teach the word of God to your children when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. Whatever your station in Christianity, you are called to preach the word that is to share the gospel in some form or another. Matthew 28, 19, the great commission that is for all of God's people. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey Christ's commands. That's for all believers. This requires us to pray. We understand that we can preach, we can evangelize, but we cannot save. We cannot convert. Every sinner is dead in his transgressions and sins. He is unable to confess Christ no matter how clearly you explain the gospel or no matter how convincing an argument you make for the cause of Christ. No, the unregenerated man is spiritually dead and cannot understand or accept the clear facts and convincing evidence for the truth of the gospel. See, there's no problem with the evidence. There's no problem with the argument. No, there is a problem in our hearers, in our audience. Even the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God every day all over the world. And they declare it to everyone, and they declare it in a language that everyone can understand. Psalm 19.1. So the problem is not with the declaration. The problem is not with the convincingness of the argument. The problem is with the audience. They are dead, spiritually dead. And they must first be made alive by God, regenerated by the Spirit, before they can confess Christ and receive eternal life. So as I said, this requires us to pray. We cannot make them alive, but God can make them alive. God must make them alive or they cannot be saved. So we must first pray before we go out and evangelize. We must pray that God will open their hearts as he did for Lydia by the river at Philippi or for Paul on the road to Damascus or for each one of us who has truly confessed Christ as Savior and Lord. We were all in the same condition, dead, until God made us alive and then sent someone to speak the word to us and enabled us to believe it and confess Christ as Lord. So we'll look at three points from our text this morning. First point, Jesus prayed. 
Second point, how Jesus prayed. And third point, Jesus preached. So first point, Jesus prayed. Verse 35 tells us that Jesus went to pray in a solitary place. Now, on its face, this doesn't seem to be all that surprising. God's people are to be people of prayer. Jesus is to be our example. So Jesus went out and prayed. But if we stop to think about it, it is somewhat extraordinary that Jesus prayed. Jesus is no ordinary man. He was a man born of Mary, but he was no mere man. He was also God. He was both God and man at once, fully God and fully man, two distinct natures in one unique person. He was almighty and all capable, and yet he prayed. And when he prayed, uh, in this passage in Mark 135, when he prayed, he had just finished a miraculous healing of Peter's mother-in-law. He had driven out sickness uh, by his power and his command. And after that, he healed various diseases uh, and drove out demons and exercised divine authority over them in verses 33 and 34. So despite his position as very God and very man, we find him praying in verse 35. And he is alone. He prays alone, not for a demonstration, not for a teaching. And in fact, if we look into the matter, we see that Jesus prayed all the time. He prayed at his baptism, Luke 3, 21, the beginning of his public ministry. At that time, the Holy Spirit came upon him in bodily form, and God the Father spoke from heaven, saying, This is my Son whom I loved and with whom I am well pleased. We find him in our text and in the parallel passage in Luke 4, 42, praying in a solitary place. And this is before he went on his missionary journey to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the whole country. So in preparation for that important event, he prayed. Then he prayed on a mountainside in Luke six twelve, prior to the important task of picking his 12 disciples. It said he prayed all night before choosing the twelve, including Judas, who he knew would betray him to death. We also find Jesus praying on a mountainside again in Luke 9, 28. At this time, he was transfigured, his glory partially revealed and made manifest, and he spoke to Moses and Elijah. He spoke about his upcoming betrayal, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And again, God the Father spoke from a cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Luke also records Jesus praying on the Mount of Olives in chapter 22, 39, as he was about to face his most severe temptation, the most severe injustice, the most excruciating physical pain of crucifixion, and the most severe punishment of the infinite wrath of God in our behalf. As he prepared to face that, he prayed. And it says an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him for the upcoming difficulties. Jesus also prayed on the cross, Luke 23:44, as he suffered the full blast of God's wrath against sin in our place, even though he himself was sinless. In this most difficult time of separation from God, uh, uh, God with whom he had enjoyed fellowship from all eternity past, in this most difficult time of separation from God, he prays. See, the crucifixion is, of course, awful, terrible, 
painful and humiliating and agonizing, but the punishment he suffered was not mere physical pain. Indeed, the physical element, excruciating as it was, the physical element was the minor part of the pain. The full wrath of God the Father poured out upon the perfect, sinless God-man was more severe than the awful physical torture. And he shows this when he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you think about that, he does not cry out, My God, my God, why have you crucified me? My God, my God, why did you have me scourged? No, why have you forsaken me? The separation from God, the pouring out of God's wrath. And he prayed many other times. He prayed in his high priestly prayer. He prayed in his prayer for Peter to return after Satan had sifted him and so on. But it is amazing, it should be amazing to us, that Jesus, very God, self-existent, all-powerful, in need of nothing, with more than 12 legions of angels at his disposal, this divine God-man, Jesus Christ, is always praying. Before, during, and at the end of his ministry on earth, and at all the critical parts of his ministry, he is praying. Now, if Jesus prayed all the time, how much more should we, his people, pray? We are far more needy than Jesus. He had need of nothing. He is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from us, he can do anything. But apart from him, we can do nothing. John 15, 5. We are weak. He is strong. We are foolish. He is wise. We sin. He does not. We become confused. We act in ignorance. The triune God, by contrast, knows all, sees all, and is perfectly holy. So he has need of nothing. We have need of everything. More than that, he invites us to pray. He says, call on me and come and pray, and I will listen to you. Jeremiah 29, 12. He hears and answers prayer. In fact, he tells us to approach his throne boldly. Hebrews 4, 16, and indeed he commands us to pray, Ephesians 6, 18. And he taught us how to pray, Luke 11. And he tells us that if we ask for anything in his name according to his will, he will do it, John 14, 14. Jesus prayed and so must we. In fact, if we do not pray, we are not born again. We are merely deceiving ourselves. We are really declaring, I don't need God. When do you pray? You pray when you need God. If you don't pray, you're declaring you do not need God. Or perhaps you're saying, God will not listen to me as he said he would. Or if we don't pray, we may be saying there is no God there to listen. We may profess that there's a God, but if we don't pray, we don't really believe that that God is there to listen and to help us. Practical atheism. If we reject God's gracious invitation to pray and disobey his command to pray, then we are wicked, we are foolish, we are unregenerate, and ultimately we are damned. So Jesus prayed, and we also must pray. Second point, how Jesus prayed. Mark 1 speaks an important word about how we must pray. Jesus is our forerunner, our example to follow in everything, and that's true of everything, but it's also true of how to pray. Notice first that he prayed very early in the morning while it was still dark. Uh, This speaks to the importance of prayer. 
Jesus was a busy person. He was about to go and preach in the towns and synagogues all over Galilee, indeed all over Israel, and then sacrifice himself on the cross. This was a long and tiring journey that he was about to undertake. By most estimates, he traveled several thousand miles during his three-year public ministry, almost all of those by foot. He had just spent the whole previous day healing people and driving out demons. Yet the next day, at the cusp of this important ministry to come, we do not find him sleeping in or resting up for the long journey ahead. Rather, he rises up before day, before dawn, and goes out to pray. Jesus understands that prayer is of critical importance for the work to come. He puts first things first, not his physical energy, not the rest that he surely needed. No, he puts first things first and goes out to pray. As I said, he was surely tired. He was, he was fully God, but he was also fully man, and he got tired. John 4, 6 says he was weary. But he knew that prayer was more important than sleep. He needed prayer because, as I said, he was fully man and thus subject to our limitations, physical. But he also sought and needed fellowship with God the Father. God the Father with whom he lived in perfect harmony and unity in the Holy Trinity from before time. More than any physical need, he sought out this primary spiritual need very early in the morning. My food, he said, is to do the will of the Father and to finish it. John 4, 34. See, he wanted to know the Father's will and seek the Spirit's power to do it before he went out and did it. So before beginning this important work of preaching the good news, this good news that the Christ had come to save his people, before the most important work ever done in the history of the world, he went out to pray. Prayer is indeed important. So he not only prayed very early in the morning, but it says he went off to a solitary place. This tells us that prayer must be earnestly seeking God's fellowship, direction, and help, not earnestly seeking other people's attention. Jesus did not pray to show off. Many people do, but God detests such false, self-centered prayer. Indeed, in Matthew 6, 5, Jesus rebukes these hypocrites who love to pray in the church or stand on the street corner and make their big prayers to be seen and admired. He rebukes those who babbled on in prayer as show-offs. He says such people have already received their reward. The reward they sought was publicity, and they already received it in this life. No, Jesus said, that's not the way to pray. Instead, he says, go into your room, close the door, and pray. Meet with God, in other words. Fellowship with God. Pray to God, not to those sitting around you so that they can marvel at your great spirituality. Secret prayer, pious prayer, earnest prayer, that is the prayer God will reward, Matthew 6, 6. That is what Jesus himself did in our passage. Now, there is, of course, an important place for corporate and public prayer. We do it here every Sunday morning in this service, and we do it here most every Saturday at the prayer meeting. And it's a great blessing to come together and to seek God together. 
But let us never cheapen God's wonderful gift of prayer by turning it into a boastful public relations tool for ourselves or a chance to show off to others. God cannot and will not bless such prideful prayer. So he prayed uh, as of first importance. He prayed earnestly. And we also see that Jesus prayed for a sustained period of time. Although we're not told in this passage exactly how long Jesus prayed for, it was long enough that Simon Peter and the rest went out looking for him. In fact, Peter exclaims to him, everyone is looking for you. So he prayed long enough to be missed and long enough for them to search him out. This shows that Jesus' prayer was earnest. He did not treat prayer as some mere obligation to be endured or a formality to be done in the morning or some box to check. No, instead, it was a key time of sweet fellowship with the Father and seeking out the Father's particular will for him that day. As it was with him, so it should be with us. Again, as I said, he's our example, so, so this should be true for everything. It should be true for prayer generally, but it is especially true for prayer that precedes evangelism. See, that's what Jesus was doing here. He was getting ready to go evangelize, to go preach the gospel, and he stopped to pray beforehand. As I already said, we can speak the gospel, the words of life, but we cannot save. We cannot persuade or argue someone to faith in Christ because all unregenerate people are morally incapable of accepting the truth of the gospel. We must speak. That's not an excuse not to go speak. We must speak, but God must move in the heart of that unbeliever and regenerate him or her by the power of the spirit. See, we can make the most logical persuasive, most moving appeal to a sinner, we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. But unless God gives that person a new heart, they will reject the good news of the gospel. So we must therefore pray. We must pray for divine appointments. That is, that God would guide us to his elect people and cause us to come in contact with those who need to hear the gospel. We must pray for courage to share the gospel. So it doesn't do us any good to meet those people that God ordained us to meet if we don't speak the gospel to them. We must share the gospel, the whole gospel, without avoiding the subject or watering it down. We must pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, but that we would boldly proclaim this good news of great joy. We must pray that the Holy Spirit would give us the right words to speak when we evangelize. Luke 12, 12. He's there to do it, to help us. And most of all, we must pray that God will move in the heart of that person by his Holy Spirit and regenerate them. In other words, that God would apply to that person the redemption that Christ achieved on the cross as we speak the gospel to them. So prayer is very important before evangelism. And third point, having prayed, he preached. As soon as his disciples found him and told him that everyone was looking for them, Jesus said, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. It was his mission. And so they went and they preached. This is, of course, further evidence of the seriousness of Jesus's early morning prayer his fellowship with God, and he also seriously sought 
without God, the Father's immediate will for them. So he, he went to fellowship with God and to seek out what does God want me to do. He learned God's immediate will for him and for his disciples and learned that they were to go and preach throughout Galilee. Now, if you look closely at the text, this does not appear to have been in the disciples' plans. Peter and the others seem pretty pleased at their newfound popularity. Jesus had healed many people. Remember that the day before he had healed Peter's mother-in-law and many people. And now it says everyone is looking for you. So he's very excited. Everyone's looking for us. We're doing something. But Jesus did not come to be popular or famous or rich. He did not come to be a local Galilean celebrity or a minor prophet or even a great rabbi. No, he tells us the reason he came. He said he came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to all people and to fulfill his role as the Messiah. So he would not stay in Capernaum where he had performed a great number of miracles and where he was popular and where everyone sought after him. No, instead, he would go in the will of God to preach the good news to God's people. See, it's not where you want to be. It's not where it's comfortable for you to be. It's not even where it's your desire to go. It is where God says to go. You go where he wants you to go. You stay when he wants you to stay. So Jesus would go to these other places. He would take his disciples to these other places and he would preach the good news and then die on the cross in our place. And that is, in fact, the good news he came to preach. He came to tell all the people that God had fulfilled his promises made in the Old Testament to send a Messiah, to send his anointed, to send his Christ, to save his people from the power of sin and from the judgment due because of sin. See, our problem is that we are all sinners deserving God's judgment. Only the righteous, only the sinless can see God and dwell with him. God is so holy that he cannot bear sinners in his holy and glorious presence. Did we know his eyes are too pure to look upon evil? Habakkuk 1.3. So God is holy. He can't have sinners in his presence. And yet all have sinned. Every person has sinned and fallen short of what God requires. Romans 3.23. There is no one who does good, not even one, the Bible tells us. So the natural man is utterly sinful from birth. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil all the time. Genesis 6, 5. So God is super holy. We are super wicked. And God has decreed the just punishment for every sinner. See, we rebelled and sinned against the infinite God who is infinitely just and infinitely holy. And so we deserve an infinite punishment, eternal agony in eternal hell. Ezekiel 18.20 and Luke 16. So that's the bad news. But against this bad news, the bad news that every person is born a sinner and lives a life of sin and deserves eternal hell. Against this bad news, Jesus brought the good news. You deserve hell, but there is a way out. There is one way out by repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is good news. That is the good news he came to preach. See, we cannot earn our way out. We cannot pay that infinite penalty. We're only finite beings. So God, in his great love and rich mercy, sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, very God and very man. He sent his eternal son to become man, to live a sinless life 
and to bear our punishment on the cross. He took all our infinite sin on himself. He paid the infinite price for us, and he put his infinite righteousness onto us. Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's good news. The wages of our sin was death, eternal death. But praise God, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. That is good news. And this is why he was sent. To preach this good news to the world and then to fulfill it. And praise God, this good news, this good gift of eternal life through faith in Christ is still available today. If you have not received this gift of eternal life in Christ, I urge you receive it today. It is a limited time offer. So your time is limited. Don't delay in receiving life in Christ, for you do not know whether you have another day, another hour, or even another moment to live. And don't look for some other way to be saved. It doesn't exist. We sinners cannot repay the debt ourselves. I already said that. Nor can any man pay it on our behalf, any mere man. Nor can any church pay it for us or any institution. No, nothing can atone for our sin except an infinite Savior who can pay our infinite debt. In other words, we need God to pay it for us. And so he sent his son, very God, to become a human being, a man, so that he could be our representative. He could stand in our place. The old sacrificial system of bulls and goats could not get the job done. No, only the God-man could pay it. He had to be God to pay the infinite price. He had to be man to stand as our representative. So we needed a God-man for our Savior. We still need a God-man for our Savior. And there is only one God-man, Jesus Christ. Speaking of Jesus, St. Peter says in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So not Allah, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Ganesh, not the Pope. Only Jesus saves. Indeed, Jesus himself said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I say, receive him today as your Savior and Lord and rejoice. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Have you already confessed him as Lord and Savior? Then go tell others about him. That is why he came and that is what he sends you to do. And before you do that, pray. Pray in a solitary place. Pray earnestly and keep on praying that God would bring unbelievers across your path. That he would make you bold to evangelize. That he would give you the exact words to speak in that exact moment. And that he would move. Move in the heart of that other person, transform them, make them alive, and enable them to confess Christ as Lord and be saved. And having done so, having prayed in preparation, get up and go to the place God sends you. Maybe it's your own hometown or even the members of your own family where he is sending you. Perhaps it is the surrounding villages. Maybe it's Jerusalem or Judea 
or the uttermost parts of the earth. Maybe it's Orlando, Florida or India. But wherever it is, discern the will of God for you. Find out where he wants you to go. See, if he wants you to go and speak in Capernaum, then you must go and speak in Capernaum. If he wants you to go and speak in the surrounding villages, then you must go and speak in the surrounding villages. Wherever that is, discern God's will for you and then go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, go and speak the word of God where he wants you to speak it. See, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to us. We must go and share the gospel. It is everyone's job. It's not just for the pastor. It's not just for the elders. It's not just for a handful of college students on the campus. Evangelism is the job of every believer. So let us pray in preparation and let us preach the good news as Jesus did. It is what we're doing here. It's why we are here. It's why God brought us together in this place. Yes, to be saved. Yes, to live together, but to go and tell others about Jesus Christ. And God will help us to do it. God will glorify himself through our evangelism. See, we are weak, but he is strong. We are unable, but he is able. If you don't think you can go and speak the gospel to someone, God will help you to do it. You can do it. And God will work through you. And God will save his elect and glorify himself through your evangelism. And all heaven will rejoice at the salvation of sinners. Amen.